Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This is going to be the second uh, in what will take us through most, about half the year, a series in Isaiah, trying to unpack the beauty that is this greatest of all the prophets. I mentioned last week, if you weren't here last week, I'll go ahead and say that last week was sort of an overview of the series and how we plan to break it down. If you plan to be with us in the future and you weren't here last week, you might want to check out the website and and listen to that sermon because it does give a good bird's eye view on what we're shooting for today and the rest of the series. What I said then was that we're going to break the series down and break the book down into what it tells us about the core pieces of the gospel. The gospel includes truth about God, truth about ourselves, truth about what God has promised us, and truth about how we're supposed to respond to His Word. So the first step in our study is to mine Isaiah, sort of dig into it, to find out what Isaiah tells us about God, to ask how we are supposed to encounter what he tells us about God and to devour it and to to work it into our consciousness and ultimately into how we live. That's the task for us today, and it's, it's a big task. And one reason it's such a big task is that really any study of, of God from Isaiah has got to start with Isaiah's use of the word holy. Now, if you have any background at all in reading the Bible, um, chances are you have come across this word for God many, many times. It's, it, I haven't done any kind of statistical study here or anything, but my sense is it's the one that's used most for God, especially in the Old Testament, as a sort of adjective that describes what he's like. And if that's true for the Bible on the whole, it's even more true for Isaiah. Here's a stat I do have for you. Isaiah uses the word holy for God more than the, more than the rest of the Old Testament combined. Isaiah alone uses the word holy for God more than the rest of the Old Testament uses it combined. We've got to start here. And starting with holiness in Isaiah means starting with the most famous passage on holiness in all of the scriptures. It's a passage that describes Isaiah's vision of God and his calling to serve as a prophet of God. The passage is in Isaiah chapter 6. But starting here, we're going to immediately face two big challenges. To start with the holiness of God in this passage and throughout Isaiah immediately confronts us with two major challenges. Here's the first challenge, as I see it. We've got to figure out what holiness is. That's not immediately clear to us. I think we kind of know what love is, at least at some level. Uh, it's, it's something that's in our experience. It's something that we can share with each other. We kind of know what merciful means when we hear that desc- God describing that way. Just, I think we have a good sense of. But holy is different. What does it mean to be holy? I think this is a word that's difficult to define. That's part of the problem. And it's difficult to understand. That's another part of the problem. It's difficult to define because it's one of these words that you almost can't define without using the word itself. It requires you to kind of talk in a circle. Here's what I mean. Most people say that that holiness, as it's used in the Old Testament, holiness is just another way of saying godness. To say that God is holy is to be talking about all the things that make him God. Holy is, 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 comes from the same word that separateness comes from, to be separate from whatever is normal. So as one guy put it, this is one definition of holiness, and, and it's pretty much useless, I think you'll find. 
Holiness connotes the essential nature. It's also kind of clunky. Sorry to do this to you, but this this makes my point. Holiness is used to connote the essential nature that belongs to the sphere of God's being or activity and that is distinct from the common or the profane. That's a really fancy way of saying to be holy is to be God. To be God is to be holy. God's holiness is God's godness. It's difficult to define in a way that doesn't use the concept itself. And so it's, we just find ourselves in a circle. What does it mean? But even if, the closer we get to what it means, the harder we have, the harder time we have, I think, understanding it. Because for God to be separate from us, like holiness says that he is, is for God to be very different from us and to be outside of our experience, to be set apart from what we know and what's familiar to us. And so that makes it hard for us to bring it down into some terms that we can latch onto and understand. He's abstract when we talk about his holiness. That's the whole point, is that he's not like us. So we have trouble defining it and, and understanding it as well. That's one big challenge. What is holiness? How can we, how can we grab onto it? We're going to face that challenge head on today. But there's another one. There's a second challenge that we're also going to try to confront today. And that is the challenge of, of experiencing God's holiness in the way that we're meant to. Of having the fact, the reality of his holiness impress us in the way that it's meant to, in the way that it obviously impressed Isaiah and others in the Bible who confronted it face to face. The problem is that we don't react to holiness in the way that Scripture says we should. We're meant to be blown over by it. And we respond with more like a sort of, meh, okay, whatever. We don't have a sense of awe. That doesn't come natural to us. So what we're going to do today, as we unpack Isaiah chapter 6, is try to face both of these challenges head on. We're going to try to get some clarity, as much as we can, on what it is to be holy. To add some some things that are in our experience from this passage to help flesh out this holiness idea that's so abstract. What are the dimensions of God's holiness? We're going to do that. And at each step along that road, we're also going to try to fight for awe together. We're going to fight to confront God's holiness and be confronted with God's holiness in the way that we should be, to reclaim what comes very, very hard for us. That's, that's our task. It's a big one. We'll trust God's Spirit to fulfill it in us through His Word. If you found his, the, the passage in God's Word this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, would you please stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read together? I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high, lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I think this passage breaks down into three steps for us this morning. Three dimensions of God's holiness that we want to try to latch on to and try to experience and encounter in a fresh way this morning. God's holy transcendence, God's holy perfection, and God's holy love. Those are the three dimensions that I think come out in this one, in this, in this text. We're going to take them one at a time, beginning with His holy transcendence. Transcendence is, a, is just a word for separateness, for being above, for being higher than, or outside of what comes normal, or outside of our experience. I'm going to start by setting the scene. Isaiah begins his vision in a weird spot with the death of a king. Normally, if you want to use a king to date whatever it is that happened, you you date it by their reign, by the time that they came to the throne, not by the time that they died. Doing this was a major choice on Isaiah's part. He was making a point. And it's a point that summarizes much of what we said last week, that Israel had, had, had declined from the days of David and Solomon into a place where they were fit for no more than exile, to be destroyed. Same thing had happened in Uzziah's reign. He started out as a great king. He was faithful. Second Chronicles tells us his story. He's one of the great kings in this period of Israel's history. He accomplished a lot. There was, there was blessing in the land. There was peace. But he got cocky. And by the end of his life, he was proud. So proud that he went into the temple against the regulations of the temple as if he had the right to go straight to God without a mediator. As if he had a right to do the things God had told priests alone to do. And he was struck with leprosy. And he finished out his days separated from the people, exiled from the people in a little home that they'd carved out for him. Most, most agree that by dating his vision with Uzziah's death, that's the image that Isaiah was going for. It's an image of the death of the people. Uzziah almost stands for the people here, symbolic of where they had come from this, from this place of, of unity and, and success and blessing in David's reign all the way down to the brink of destruction by the time of Uzziah. They are separate from God. They are prideful, too prideful even to see their own condition. And it's in Isaiah's despair that all of a sudden he sees the Lord. He goes to the temple to worship like he must have regularly and he's transported from that place into this mysterious vision that it would really make no sense for us to try to unpack in terms of what was he seeing? Where was he? Did he actually go anywhere? Who knows? He's transported. That's what we know. And he sees God in some sort of mysterious way. And what he sees more than sort of overarching anything else, is a God who transcends everything that we know and experience in our world. A God who's higher than us. Now, to start here is to start with what makes holiness hard to understand. I get that. But we're going to try. We're going to follow Isaiah's language. And you almost pity him here, or I do anyway, the more I've read it. Because it's like he's trying his best to find words for what he's seeing. He talks about the Lord is high and lifted up. It sounds almost mundane to say it that way, but what else is he going to say? He's high and lifted up. He's transcendent. He, calls, he, he refers to the throne on which he sits. And, the, and get this detail. The train of his robe or the hem of his robe fills the entire temple. How does that work? If the hem fills the temple, how big is the throne? How big is the robe itself? 
How big is the guy who's wearing the robe and sitting on the throne? You can see now we've, we've, we've left the realm of what's natural and normal, the realm of what even makes reasonable sense. And Isaiah is just grasping at images to try to put on paper what it was that he saw. And it's, it is a God who is transcendent and beyond anything else that we can understand. He describes in verse 2 these holy beings who are sort of swarming, above, I almost see them as a swarm of bees over the throne where this one is sitting. They're, they're glorious in their appearance. They're called seraphim, which just means burning ones. So they're clearly these, these holy, transcendent beings themselves. They have wings that are covering their eyes and covering their feet and they're using to fly. One commentator said that it's almost like if you were to draw this out, they would look like flames. It's almost like that's why Isaiah decides to call them burning ones, because of the way that they look. And these holy beings exist for one and only one purpose. They exist to call out to each other, I assume for all of eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They don't get tired of it. They don't get numb to it. They exist to call to one another in an almost antiphonal song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Even these beings, whose whole existence is about singing about God, have lost the ability to describe what they're doing in language. Can't you see that's why they repeat it three times? They don't have anything else to say. Holy, he's holy, he's holy, he's holy. There's nothing else to be said. We use exclamation points or italics or bold font to emphasize. The Hebrews used repetition. But nowhere else in all of the Bible is anything repeated three times. This is the strongest emphasis that's given to anything anywhere in Scripture. And it's because they are seeing this thing that they can't, they can't confine in their words and they're almost throwing their hands up and saying, he's just super, super, super great. He is really God. And they sing that the whole earth is full of his glory. That means that everything we know, everything we see, Everything we are dwarfed by, from the largest of mountains to the most terrible of storms, to the most intricate beauty in the creation, everything that we're dwarfed by is full of His glory, and it can't even contain His glory. His glory is bigger than this world that dwarfs us. God isn't limited at all, but completely free. It's a scene that's meant to emphasize transcendence at every turn, that He is gloriously not like us. These beings, these seraphim, show what's the only reasonable and the only morally appropriate response to any vision of God. They are struck with awe that never runs out. They never get numb to it. They never tire of its brilliance. But I'll be honest, this does not reflect my ongoing encounter with God. All right, brutal honesty. I'm guessing I'm not the only one. I don't do awe very well in general, I think. Now, I'm awestruck by certain things at certain times. As long as I've known my wife from the time when we were kids, there have been moments where I'm just struck with a kind of awe at her beauty. It just hits me in a new and fresh way. There are moments now as, as a parent where I'm struck like that with my kids as they continue to develop. They'll say something that just comes out of nowhere or they'll respond to me with love in a way that I didn't expect or hadn't seen before and I'm just almost bowled over by it. How can I get the privilege of parenting? Sometimes I'm awed by a great piece of music or an incredible book 
where for all of my critical thinking that I just can't seem to turn off normally, for all of my cynicism, I'm just carried along by the music or by the story. I'm just carried along by it at its mercy. When I get to the end, I have to throw up my hands and say, that is exactly what it should have been. I've got nothing to say about this, and I could never have pulled that off. I know awe sometimes, but almost never in the way that I wish I did with my encounter with God. I'm guessing that I'm not the only one in the room who feels that way. And so I want to get really practical here for a minute. One of my favorite books is a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. We always keep a copy of it on the resource table. If you haven't read it, it's really worth your time. Um, it's, it's, it's written in a way that you could use it easily for devotional reading. You know, in the mornings, it's got short chapters and short sections. Highly recommended. There's a chapter in there on the majesty of God, which is pretty much another way of saying what I've been saying. This dimension of God's holiness, this transcendence is another way of saying majesty. And, and Packer tapes, takes up this question or this problem that we don't encounter God's majesty in the way we want to. We're not, we're not bowled over by it in the way that these seraphim are. And he gives two steps to connecting with majesty, to connecting with transcendence of, of, of God. I want to give them to you, hopefully... Uh, but with God's help, by the Spirit, we can, we can fight together for this awe that we're supposed to feel and that we don't feel. Here's step number one. Remove what limits God. Remove what makes Him small in your mind. All of us live in a particular time and a particular place, which is another way of saying all of us carry cultural baggage, things about where we live and what seems natural to us that's shaped by our environment, by the culture around us, that wasn't the same when our grandparents were our age or much less the years when the Bible was written. And I think one way of bringing Packer's advice home is to say, to say it like this, remove or be aware of the things that come natural to you because of where you live, because of your context, that are making God small in your mind and fight against those things. Don't accept them as inevitable, as if, they ha- as if you have to look at things this way. But fight against it. Here's, here's what I think this becomes really practical for us. Especially for those of you born in, say, the mid-70s up through the 90s. That whole generation, the one that's coming into adulthood now and, and, and living in early adulthood now, is defined by irony more than anything else, right? This is what sociologists are saying all the time. Right? One of my favorite pieces in, in the Times last year was this op-ed about, uh, called How to Live Without Irony. How to Live Without Irony. It's a, it's a funny and really insightful piece. I recommend it. You can Google it. The, the article started by poking a lot of fun at clothes because clothes is one of the ways we can see our ironic tendencies, right? And, and without, you know, without trying to make any of you too self-conscious... Uh, I can't. I can't resist at least, at least mentioning the way this article plays out. One of the one of the signs of irony in our age. I, I, let me let me back up. So to, to be ironic is to sort of um, is to sort of see through things to 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 do things that someone like you would never do, and so therefore by doing them, it's funny and makes a statement about your sensitivity, your ability to perceive all things, right? To see from the, from the bird's eye view. Um, the article makes the point that irony is actually a sort of negative statement, not a positive statement. To be ironic is to say, I would never do this. That's why I'm doing it. It's not to say, it's not to say anything positive about what, what you do value, about what you do think is true and, and beautiful and right, but to say what you don't. So I've shopped for some jeans 
uh, not long ago, and it's almost impossible now to find some without holes in them, right? You remember when that was still new and cutting edge? It was an ironic statement. I guess it's not now anymore because they all have holes in them, but, uh, but, but for a while it was, I, I'm not the kind of person who would ever wear jeans with holes in them, and so, therefore by wearing jeans with holes in them, I'm being funny. Or I would, I'm not the kind of person that would ever wear a shirt with the Teletubbies on it. So by wearing a shirt with the Teletubbies on it, I'm making a funny statement. It's a, it's a negative statement, but it's still funny, right? That's what makes it ironic. Our age is defined by this, not just in clothes, but in a ho- any host of ways. And, and, and the overarching perspective that it gives us is one of cynicism, one of believing we can and should see through everything, Right? It's one that keeps us from wanting to be impacted or awed by anything. All that comes from patriotism, for example, from love of country, from believing in the justice of the fight that drove our grandparents is, is, comes off as cheesy in our day, right? War movies aren't like that anymore. People don't think of America in that way anymore. There's some good in that. Right? There's, there's a purging effect that that has had on us from some idols that, that may became easier to our grandparents than they come to us. But it makes the point. Same is true with great leaders or heroes. We tend to always wonder what that person is hiding. You know, movies don't have heroes anymore in them in, in the way that they did. You know, Jefferson, for us, is a guy who had slaves. Teddy Roosevelt is a guy who was an imperialist. Martin Luther King Jr., even, is a guy who was a plagiarizer and a womanizer, Right? We chop people down to size. That's what we do. We see through them. But what happens when we give in to that way of looking at things that comes so natural to us is that we start to see through everything and therefore believe that there's nothing there to see. There's, there's nothing that's true or beautiful in a way that won't ever change, in a way that, that calls us even to account, that stands in judgment over us. Because we try to see through everything, we are left with nothing to see. And it undercuts the possibility of a truth without pretense or without any qualification. It undercuts the possibility of seeing God the way Isaiah saw him here, the way the seraphim see him every day, the way that you're moved to cry out at the bounds of language, holy. Our culture has stacked the deck against us. It has dulled us to seeing God's bigness. And I don't have a silver bullet answer for how you can get that out of yourself. What I'm calling you to, and to help me with, is to fighting that, to not letting our natural way of looking at things keep us from the awe we should feel at seeing a God who is absolutely true, who is absolutely right and absolutely beautiful. A God without a trace of irony. That's step one that Packer gives us. Remove what limits God or makes him small in your mind. That takes a lot of work. I don't know how to ensure it's going to work. But we're going to pray through that together and fight it together. That's what we'll commit to do. Here's the second thing Packer suggests. Compare God to what we know to be great. If you want to connect with the idea of God's greatness and majesty and transcendence, And that idea is so far removed from you that it's hard to bring it down to reality. One way of bringing it down is to think about something you do already get awed by, something you do think as great, and then compare God to that. Now, the entire message next week is going to be on this theme, and we're going to take up one of the the sections of Isaiah where he's doing exactly that. 
in Isaiah chapter 40, it's like a laundry list of things that Israel and all of their neighbors were worshiping as kinds of gods because they were bigger than them and sort of held, and, and they lived at the mercy of these other factors like nations and powerful leaders and the rain and the, the storms and stuff like that. And chapter 40 compares God to all those things and shows how much greater he is. So I don't want to get into that too much here, except to put that on your radar and say, think about what causes you awe in the natural world. My guess is that all of you experience this at one time or another. And then let that awe drive you to awe at God and his greatness. I don't know that there is a person alive who has stepped to the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time and not been blown away by it. I don't know there's anyone alive who's taken the time to actually look up at the stars if you're out of the, out of the city at some point. And, you, and you're actually in a place where you can see them, and you see the, the, the seemingly infinite expanse of them, the number of them, and you know that each one of those is just like our sun, which dominates our world, and you think through that of the bigness of this universe, and that God created it all, and not only created it all, but he numbers them all, and has named them all. Who is this God? He is like nothing else in our experience. That's who he is. And, and to connect with his transcendence means thinking carefully about what we already are in awe of and then comparing God to it. It's not, again, a silver bullet. It's a way of fighting. It's a strategy for fighting for the awe we should experience when we encounter God in his transcendence. We're going to come back to this next week and talk about it at length. For now, I want to move on to number two. The second piece of this this vision that Isaiah has that helps us understand one dimension of what God's holiness is like, helps us put flesh on this abstract idea of holiness is God's holy perfection, his moral perfection. One of the most common traits that the Bible gives to God as a way of showing how he's set apart from us is that he is perfectly holy in his moral perfection, that he always does what's right, that he established what's right, upholds it as a king who will give an account for all things that, that go against what is right, as this, this God who never, ever does anything he shouldn't. His moral perfection is, I think honestly, his moral perfection is what we probably think of first when we, when we hear the word holy. We've almost, we've almost domesticated it and put this word holy as just an adjective for doing right, for being good, for obedience. It is true of it, and we're gonna, as we're about to see, but it's, it's, it's also much bigger than that. The holiness of God that is his moral perfection is all through the Old Testament, and I think it lies behind Isaiah's reaction in verse 5 when he sees God for who he is. And when he sees him as the one who loves what's right, who has a burning passion and hatred for all that's wrong, who's devoted to what is right with his whole being, Isaiah's reaction almost instinctively is, woe. And I don't mean woe, I mean woe is me. It's 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 a term of lament. It's the term uttered by the prophets and pretty much anyone in the Old Testament who knows that they are done for, right? That they have seen or encountered something that they cannot survive. Seeing God for who he is, Isaiah's response is not first worship, but despair. Because he immediately, seeing God for who he is, understands himself in a new way. He sees himself for who he is. I love this word that he uses. I am lost is the way my translation puts it. Others may say I am ruined or I am undone. And the word behind it is a lot closer to undone. I am disintegrated is the way you might, you might put it. 
and not to read too much 20th century psychologizing into Isaiah, but I think it's here. What Isaiah is expressing is that his identity, his understanding of himself has now fallen apart because he has seen himself in a new light, in the light of God's perfect holiness. And in in that light, the, the, the picture, the image of himself that he'd been working to build, working to present to others in the same way that we all do, has fallen apart, it has disintegrated. He is exposed by the light of God's perfection and he is lost. That he, that he attaches this to seeing God as the King, as the Lord of hosts, I think helps us really understand, come at this same idea from a slightly different angle. We understand what's happened here. What always happens when you see yourself in light of moral perfection, absolute rightness. Here's my analogy for it. In all honesty, I do try to follow the speed limit when I drive. The problem is, I don't try very hard. (laughs) I've kind of gotten lax on that. I've kind of just not really looked that often and sort of drive with the traffic. But what always jolts me awake and makes me look again is when I come over the hill on an interstate and there's a state trooper sort of hiding in in the tree. Don't you hate how they do that? Hide over there in those trees and he's got the gun out. There is this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach that I get when I, see, when I see a state trooper hiding like that. And that feeling comes from being jolted out of how I had been defining holiness, moral perfection, which was sort of going with the crowd, living among a people of unclean lips, so to speak, as Isaiah puts it. I've been jolted out of that by a vision of the one whose job it is to uphold absolute holiness in this regard. Absolute perfection. Seeing the one who has the authority, the sort of kingly figure in this analogy, jolts me into seeing my own laxness, my own sin even, in a new way. And that's what's happened to Isaiah. He's been a person of unclean lips, but he lives among a people of unclean lips, he says. I don't want to get into why he chose lips as an image for his uncleanness. No one's really quite sure But the point is he sees himself now as being unclean, as being not what he should be. And he lives among people who are like that. He'd been driving with the traffic, right? Letting it establish what's right for him. 75, 80, 85, whatever everybody else is driving is what I'm driving, and that's got to be okay because it's okay for them. And then wham, he sees the state trooper. He sees the king, the Lord of hosts, and he's shaken out of it. And his complacency is undone. And he sees himself for who he is, which is a lawbreaker who deserves to die. It's that serious. It's not hard to see why this dimension of God's holiness sets him apart from this world. If holiness is about what sets God apart, it's not hard to see how moral perfection is one of the things that makes him totally unlike us. We all know and look for justice. We know that we need it. We celebrate it when we see it. We even do what's right sometimes. We especially do what's right if we're likely to be noticed for it. If it squares for some sort of popular surge of the moment that other people are into, we know it's going to get us ahead if it comes with a t-shirt or whatever. But our commitment to what's right runs through a filter. If we're honest, our commitment to what's right runs through a filter. A filter that Filters for convenience, for notoriety, for what will be more or less pleasurable to us. We operate on a sort of moral diet where 
being good most of the week justifies cheating a little bit on the weekends, right? And we get comfortable living in, in this way as if this was what was right because everyone else does. Because we live among a people of unclean lips. Another way of putting it is that we live in this way and we're comfortable with it because we have not ever seen God's moral holiness for what it is. We have not seen the king. Our eyes are more fixed on the people around us and on their standards than on God's standards. Again, I think it's a sort of circle. We don't see God's moral holiness for what it is because we don't see our sin as a big deal. We're not in awe of God's separateness from sin because we're not that bothered by our sin. And we're not that bothered by our sin because we don't see God's holiness for what it is. And we don't see God's holiness for what it is because we're not that bothered by our sin. And we're not that bothered by our sin because we don't see God's holiness for what it is. And it's a cycle that we just can't escape from on our own. It's what Paul calls being dead in trespasses and sin. Stuck there. Unable to liberate yourself. Needing God to make you alive before you can see it. To gain awe at our sin and at God's moral purity, I think the first and most effective thing we can do is pray that we will start to see our sin like God does. Because it's got to be a gift from Him. To pull this off, it has got to be God intervening in the situation, reaching down to one who is dead and giving them life before they can see anything. Without that kind of intervention, we're hopeless. We have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. So we pray that we will start to see our sin like God sees it, not as our peers see it, not as the people see it. And to get a little more specific, I think it means praying that we'll hate our sin more than we hate the sin of other people. You know, it's not, it's not that hard to connect with the sin of other people, right? We have trouble seeing our sin for what it is, but we don't, we don't struggle to see or connect with or be moved by the sin of other people against us. So what we have to pray is that God would help us to hate our own sin and be more focused and fixated on it than we are on the sins of other people that we know or that we read about in the paper even. That's what it will take for us to have awe as we should, as Isaiah did, at confronting God in his moral perfection. And here's the last one. God's holiness includes not just his holy transcendence or his holy perfection, but his holy love. His holy love. This is the image that comes out in verses 6 and 7, and it is a beautiful image. Only sharing Isaiah's awe in the face of God's holy perfection, only sharing in that awe, prepares us for the awe we should experience when we read what happens next in verses 6 and 7. In his despair, Isaiah is met by the merciful initiative of God. God sends one of his agents, one of these burning ones, who are constantly calling out to him, who are constantly singing his praise and live for that purpose. He calls to one of these agents who live to hear from him and respond to his command and sends him to the altar. And from the altar, from the place where God's holy justice is satisfied, from the place where peace gets made. This being, doing the will of God, takes a burning coal from that altar to Isaiah and touches him precisely at the spot where he sensed his uncleanness. And he purges him, washes him 
free from his unclean lips. The imagery is meant to point us to exactly what I hope you're already thinking about. That this is, this is a window into what God will ultimately do for all through Jesus to those who trust in him. That God sends his own son, lays himself in a sense on this altar and from this altar makes peace, even cleanses and purges those who had rebelled against him. Or in the words of the seraphim, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. What's happened to Isaiah here is that he has been reintegrated. If seeing God and His holiness disintegrated him and all the pretense that was part of his identity, all the lies he had told himself and others about who he was, if those are dispelled by seeing God for who God is, now he is reintegrated and given a new identity as one who has been purged, as one who has had his sin once and for all atoned for and his guilt removed. That is who Isaiah is in light of God's holy love. And I hope it's clear to you why this love is holy. If holiness, if holiness is that which sets God apart from everything else in our experience, makes him different from us, God, when, when we aren't and never could be, then his love as clearly as anything else identifies him or marks him off as holy. He is not like us. Another prophet clarifies this, basically the same point. One of my favorite prophets is the prophet Hosea. He's the one who was told by God to go and marry a prostitute as a way of symbolizing how Israel had been unfaithful to God. And at, the, at, at one of the climactic points in that prophecy, where God is talking about the judgment he has got to send on Israel in order to clarify his own name and make it clear that he is, that he is not to be toyed with, that he is not cheap or something to be discarded like Israel had treated him. At the very climactic point, as he's just described the judgment he's got to bring on sin, somehow, without explanation, the whole tone shifts. And in chapter 11, here's what God says. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger and I will not destroy Ephraim. Another way of referring to Israel. And here's the reason he gives. Do not miss this. This is the reason that he won't judge as he should. I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. I am not like you, and therefore I will not come in anger. You get that? What makes Him God and not a man, what makes Him holy, is His resolve to love when wrath is what's required. Who loves like this, right? How can God love like this? Given this moral perfection we've just talked about, given his transcendence that we have scorned and mocked by our sin, how is, God, how is he able to love in a way that doesn't hold our sin against us? That is the question Jesus comes to answer. It is only because of this image that we get of, of forgiveness and peace coming from an altar where satisfaction has been made once and for all. That's how he does it. I want to return and, cl- and close, though by going back to this ongoing struggle I've been talking about, the struggle to have awe when we see God described in this way. We connect, I think, much more easily with images of God as Redeemer, images of God as Father or as a shepherd who gathers his sheep into his arms. Uh, we, 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 we see and connect with those 
I think, a lot easier than we do connecting with his transcendence or his moral perfection. I think you even see this in the way that we, in church buildings that are built now. You know, the medievals built these huge cathedrals with these, these huge ceilings uh, and, and, and huge windows, all of it about bigness and transcendence. They connected with that. Our buildings aren't like that anymore, right? They're homey. They're more, more like where you live. They're more about warmth and tenderness. That's what, that's what we see. That's what is more clear to us. But there's a, there's, a, there's a loss here. We lose a great deal of the awe we should feel at God's sacrificial love and mercy towards us, at the imagery of God as shepherd, as, of God as father. We lose the awe we should feel at these images that we connect with more easily, when we don't connect with them on the backside of seeing God in His moral perfection and God in His holy transcendence. Because it's only when we see God as He is that we truly can be moved by and awed by the fact that He would love us in this way. Without awe at transcendence and awe at moral perfection, we'll see the forgiving, sacrificial love of God as normal, as almost an entitlement as just what God does. This is what He has to do. Rather than seeing it as something radically not normal, we will never be able to say, what love is like your love, O Lord, until we have connected with the holy transcendence and the holy perfection of God. There will be no awe here. God is radically not normal in the fact that He came to us in Jesus. And the fact that the one who holds all of creation in his hands called children to himself to sit on his lap. At the fact that God himself came to those who had abandoned him so that he could make a covenant with them promising he will never leave them or forsake them. Who does that? The God of the universe does that. The God whose perfection is unblemished does that. The God whose love found a way to express tenderness and compassion like the shepherd or the father that we know him to be in spite of what his justice required. The God who's revealed to us ultimately in Jesus. We've got to fight to see this God for who he is. And it's a fight we'll only win as the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see. So I think it's more appropriate even than in any other time that we close this message with a prayer where we beg our Father to help us to see him in his glory just as Isaiah did. Father, Oh, we want to see you like Isaiah saw you, high and lifted up. Right now, those are just words that we speak. We want to know them as living realities that move our hearts, that change what we love, that change what seems normal to us. We want to share in your holiness even, as you've promised us we will by your Spirit. And so all we can do right now is commit ourselves into your hands and ask that you change us. We are, on our own, dead in trespasses and sin caught in a cycle that we can't break free from. But you are rich in mercy. Through Jesus, you have reached into that cycle to pull us out of it. So we ask that you hold on to us, that you change us in a way that pleases you. And we ask that you do it quickly for the sake of your name, in which we pray now. Amen.